I didn't go through everything that I went through just to survive. There's got to be a bigger purpose. And whether it's just something that I tell myself to feel better about it, if my story can help one person, then it was worth it. Hey there, my name is Sean and this is Suicide Noted. On this podcast, I talk with suicide attempt survivors so that we can hear their stories. Every year around the world, millions of people try to take their own lives and we almost never talk about it. We certainly don't talk about it enough. And when we do talk about it, many of us, including me, we are not very good at it. So one of my goals with this podcast is to have more conversations and I hope better conversations with attempt survivors. As always, I want to thank everybody who has joined me here on this podcast since we launched in July of 2020, and to everybody who listens, thank you. If you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to talk, please reach out, hello at suicidenoted.com on Facebook or Twitter, at Suicide Noted. If you check the show notes, you will find another way to reach out to us via a recorded message, ways to sponsor and or support us, as well as the possibility of having us come to your campus or your community or your organization to facilitate these kinds of difficult conversations. Reach out. We'd love to talk. And if there are any upcoming events, you will find that there too. Now, please keep in mind, we are talking about suicide on this podcast, as the title suggests, may not be a good fit for everybody. So take that into account before or as you listen. But I do hope you listen because there is so much to learn. Today, I am talking with Christine. Christine lives in New York and she is a suicide attempt survivor. Hey, Christine. In New York. Yep. What part of New York are you in? Staten Island. Oh, here we go. Okay. <laughs> Now, now the conversation's getting started. Christine in Staten Island. How exactly did we find each other? How'd you find the podcast? Yep, I went to Google and I put in suicide podcast. All right, so that begs the question. You know, the question is why? Because I, since my attempt, mm-hmm. I personally, one of the things that has helped me kind of heal or feel better and was actually listening to other people's stories. In a way, it's like, you're not alone. You know, whether it be stories of people that have survived or it be stories from family that lost somebody. So I was diagnosed with borderline, listening to other people's borderline stories. Hearing that makes me feel less, I want to say crazy, but it's not crazy, but less, I guess, isolated when I'm in a world of people that don't understand what goes on in my brain. What's so fascinating to me is when we walk outside, I'm in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. You're in Staten Island. We are engaging with, or at least crossing paths with people who are going through, for lack of a better word, similar things. It's not exactly the same, of course, but we don't acknowledge it often. And I get it. If you're like at a supermarket, you're not going to probably have a conversation about, oh, you have borderline. You might, it's unlikely, but they're there. Mm -hmm. The numbers are high enough where like we know mathematically, statistically, we're crossing paths with people in the park or at the zoo or at the supermarket that have attempted suicide, lost someone to suicide, have a certain diagnosis. Yep. They're around. Yep. Everywhere. But it's not enough. No. You got to actually talk or hear or something more, I think. Yes. I agree with you 100%. That is what I love hearing. I love hearing that people agree with me 100%. <laughs> now, I'm just kidding. You can disagree all you want. I mean, we're two New Yorkers here. We're going to have to have a little disagreement. It's part of the package. It's part of our DNA. I mean, this is true. So you put the word in, you found the, some podcasts, including this one. The other question I have, and then we'll roll right into it. We already have. You heard it, and then you did one thing, something more that most people don't do. And I'm not judging anybody for what they do or don't do at all. You reached out, and here we are. And so the other part of that question is, you looked for it, and then you're like, I want to talk to this guy. Mm-hmm. You know, hearing stuff to feel less alone or less, quote unquote, crazy or whatever the words we want to use is one thing. But then talking about it, that's like another level. So why are you comfortable or how are you comfortable right now? Because well, I know you're on a couch. That looks comfortable. Yes. So basically, I feel that 
I didn't go through everything that I went through just to survive. Uh, There's got to be a bigger purpose. And whether it's just something that I tell myself to feel better about it. And I know that I've heard other people on the podcast say this as well, is if my story can help one person, then it was worth it. Yeah. And that's kind of, I feel like, you know, that barrier of not speaking about mental health and, and whatnot needs to be broken. And I think it's being done more and more, but there's still stigma and there's still so much unknown about it unless you've gone there and and been where many of us have been, you don't really understand it. So if I can tell my story and get someone to kind of understand, whether it be them who's going through something or they know somebody who's going through something, let there be more compassion or just for a simple example, like things of people reaching out to me during that time when I was extremely depressed and things that I wanted to hear and things that I hated hearing. Maybe that would help somebody else if they're in the situation of having to be that friend or that mm-hmm. someone where you don't know what to do. If mm-hmm. just a few words or, you know, I hate saying it gets better. Me too. And there was actually someone that you recently had on that said it perfectly. It doesn't get better. It just gets more tolerable for the most part. You get to, you learn how to handle it better. I don't know. I, would, I imagine for some people it gets better. For me, I don't like any of those kinds of, I don't know if the word's a platitude. It's, it's just a strange thing to say. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you've heard the podcast, maybe the episodes you listen to, this didn't come up, but one of my ongoing mini rants is, look, un- unless you have given me your time and energy and really stayed with me and listened, do not offer me a fucking platitude. No. If you want to listen for like a period of time and then offer that, I might have a little more room for that. But by the way, if you actually listen to someone for a while, you probably aren't even wanting to offer that Mm because you realize that's the gift you're giving them. Yeah. They don't need those silly words of, and we could, there's a long list of all the silly things people say, presumably meaning, well, I don't know, but it doesn't even matter at some point. It's like, stop. Mid thirties. Yep. Staten Island, New York, originally from Brooklyn. Do you have one attempt or more? One attempt. Okay. One full-fledged attempt. And how old were you when that when that happened? I was 32. Pre-pandemic. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily look for causes, but there are reasons why people do this. And so I'm wondering, in your first 31 plus years of life, is there, I mean, I kind of know you were in Brooklyn and you went to this high school near Park Slope and eventually you moved near, nearer with your sister in Staten Island. I'm trying to take uh, 32 years of life and crunch it down to a minute, which I know is unfair, but what's your life like? It's a mix. There's a lot of stuff thrown in there, whether it be family stuff or medical stuff or just life in general. I wouldn't say that it's been the easiest, but I also have nothing to compare it to, but it's kind of been a culmination of many, many, many things that I didn't really realize until I started going to therapy a few years ago. Okay. And you said you are from a big family, right? Grew up in an Italian family. Everything was about family. It was very, very close with my paternal grandparents. I mean, Christmas was Christmas Eve at my house was 35 people, both sides of the family. Everybody was over. Christmas Day was at my aunt's house. Another 30 people. Sundays was dinner with the family. And um, so I grew up with that base of family's everything. Now my sister's older than me. So I kind of always felt like I grew up in her shadows. We were very, very different children and we're very different adults from my perspective. And I know that you could live in one house and have two different childhoods. For me, I kind of felt independent and alone. She was older. She had her friends only by like three years, but it was still enough of an age gap where there was that difference. And with my parents, it took me a very long time to learn this. They loved me to the best of their ability. It just wasn't necessarily the love that I needed growing up. They made sure that my sister and I went to Catholic school our entire lives. My parents owned their own house for the first seven years of my life. And then my dad owning his own business got into you know, some trouble. The business wasn't going well. We ended up moving in with my grandparents, staying there for a lot longer than expected. But at the end of the day, there was always food on our table. There was always a roof over our heads. They made sure that we got a good education. When I hear that, I know it's coming. 
<laughs> because people who feel like everything, they don't frame it that way. Uh-huh. Like, well, I, I had a roof over my head and I, I went to a private school. There's a butt coming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fair. And I want to hear it. But <laughs> good time. I want to say from the outside and even from the inside for me being a kid, it looked like it was like, wow, my parents, you know, they're still together. Other people's parents are divorced and, you know, we've got a good life and my family, we're so close and all of these things. And other people saw it too, would be like, oh my God, your family's so fun. And when we would have parties, everybody would want to be a part of the family. And it was like, all right, so my family is the cool family. And I thought the same thing because I didn't realize the intricacies of things that were behind closed doors. At some point, my mom had to go back to work. So that was an issue. And my dad, whom I love dearly, he's tough. He wasn't, you know, the easiest. My sister and I were his daughters. He had no boys. We were out there washing the car with him every Saturday. We were helping him move stuff in the house. We'd be like, oh, they're so fragile and gentle, my little girls. It was more of, I'm going to treat you how I treat you. And I'm going to, you know, discipline you how I I feel needs to be disciplined. And I also know, and I agree with it, that growing up, I was more of the troublemaker. I would lie. I would provoke my sister. I would provoke my parents. I knew how to push buttons. Mm -hmm. It was very easy for me. I was the kid that you tell, don't touch the fire. I had to touch the fire. Oh, yeah. It was the only way I would learn. And to this day, I'm the same person. But you got some good scars. Yep. Oh, and this is all we and we know where this conversation is going. <laughs> of course, there are some scars and some wounds and all of the above. My parents also didn't have the best relationship. Uh, they would be arguing. My dad being this strong presence. If he walked into a room and was in a bad mood, we knew not to cross his path, not to push anything. If he was silent, we were silent. And my mother never said anything to kind of break that up. It was in a way fear because we were afraid of, uh oh, if we piss daddy off, like what's going to happen? Or is he going to take it out on us? Because my father was, he went through depression. I say that's kind of where I learned how to be depressed. He worked really, really hard. And I thank him for my work ethic. But if things weren't going his way, he could blow up, he could get angry, he could take it out on other people, whether it be by yelling. I got hit from time to time. Not anything where it left scars or I had to go to like the hospital or anything. It'd be like a slap on the ass. It created this sense of fear. So as a child, I was very attached to my mother. As I started to get older, my mother was the type of person that would say like, if we got in trouble, wait till your father gets home. So to make him out to be like the bad guy. Good cop, bad cop. Yep. So I started to realize that. I started to realize that if, you know, I confided in my mother, it somehow always got back to my dad. So along the way, the dynamics shifted and I became closer with my dad. I started high school September 2001. Oh, wow. It was maybe my fourth or fifth day of high school. I don't remember. Wow. And sitting in class, it was Italian class. I just remember sirens, you know, when they started to make the announcement at school, I didn't understand what was going on. Nothing like this had ever happened in my life. Well, sure. Throughout the day, they start calling kids names. My dad was working in Queens at the time. Neither of my parents can come home. Eventually, my sister comes to pick me up. That day, I just so happened to have religion class. And my teacher was a Vietnam veteran. And he had a mullet. And he had dark glasses and he's standing at the front of the classroom telling us how we're going to go to war and we're going to be drafted and all of this stuff. And I'm 14 scared. Oh, wait, he was teaching religion. Yes. Just to be clear, we're talking about Catholicism. Yes. This is a Catholic school. Yep. I think for him, like he was just that seventies guy that was still kind of stuck in that time. And he was a great man and, and, and a great teacher, but put this fear of God into me that day. Yeah. Thank God didn't lose anybody in 9-11. I thank God every day because my mom was right there. My yeah. uncle is a cop and my other uncle works sanitation. But I know for the next two weeks, I had to sleep in my parents' bed because I was scared. Does that play a huge part into my story? No, but I think that, I mean, it changed everybody's life from that day moving forward. 
But I think kind of putting that fear and at the same time, later on into the year and into the next year, my parents were in a very bad place. So here I was early in my freshman year of high school, leaning on my parents, scared. Seven months later, I'm scared in a different way and mm-hmm. can't lean on my parents because they're in a really, really bad place. And I'm you know, watching them argue and argue so bad that it was affecting my schoolwork. So it was kind of like this formative time of my life of 14 and just entering high school and still trying to figure myself out and learn all of this stuff. The year started and ended in two different conflicting ways of depending on my parents and being that little kid that still wanted mommy and daddy Mm -hmm. to then seeing my parents in a completely different light. So with the Italian family and the parents and the fear and the change and 9-11 and the school, these are all in part sort of contributing factors Mm -hmm. to eventually what happens. I mean, it leads to all kinds of things. This is your history. This is your life. In this context, though, at some point, you're 14 when you're in that Catholic school and Mr. Mullet Man, who's a great teacher, is scaring you, probably inadvertently. <laughs> and then 18 years later, more or less, yep. a few years ago, mm-hmm. I'm wicked good at math. You attempt to take your own life. So in those 18 years, what happened? Um, kind of sum it up. So probably since I'm 12 years old, I've thought about suicide. I was going to ask that question. 12 years old, you started. Probably somewhere around there. All right. So this is getting pretty intense at a young age. Mm -hmm. I later learned in life that it's suicidal ideation. I remember it specifically also now referring back to my parents' really bad time. That summer, it was really bad. And I remember being really bad. And my depression was really bad. I felt like nobody noticed it. They were so consumed with their own stuff that nobody saw how depressed I was and how it was affecting me. And that sort of became a theme. I would think about suicide. And then in my junior year of high school, I was in physics class and all we heard was a scream. Later, we were called into a assembly and they told us that one of the freshman students had committed suicide. Nobody knew what I was feeling at this point or whatnot. It just hit very close to home because I knew the thoughts that went on in my head. Yeah. At the same time, my sister had also found what I guess you would call a suicide letter and had brought it to the counselors at school. This was your suicide letter? Yes. And this was about the same time? Yes. All of this happened in high school. I don't remember the exact years. And it's amazing because it was early 2000s. Things were very different. It was Catholic school. Things are not the way they are now. So my sister brings this letter in. The counselors call me in. I meet with them a handful of times and manage to kind of talk my way out of it. Sure, sure. I guess manipulate them. Nothing was ever said to my parents. There was never any alarm brought up kind of, I want to say, got away with it then. Do you still have the note? No. I have others. Was that suicide note? Why'd you write that? Do you remember? I don't fully remember. I think it was just like, let me get it out. I always said to myself, like, I would never actually do it. Um, I would love to, Mm -hmm. but I don't see myself actually doing it. I didn't have the quote unquote balls to do it. Until a few years ago. Yes. So that was kind of high school, went through college. Started to have anxiety around 21, 22. I had a really close friend group and that friend group was kind of breaking apart and that affected me a lot. Get into my later 20s. Now I'm working in restaurants in the city, loving my job. But at the same time, I was an office manager for the most part in all the rest. I've opened a few restaurants and I've had amazing experiences and met amazing people along the way and have worked with some of the most talented people in the business. But it's a very unhealthy career choice. Working late hours, I, you know, was drinking a lot, never did drugs because drinking was enough for me. And at this point now, I'm in my mid-20s. My dad and I, like, we would hang out and drink. I never saw it to be a problem. Yeah, I would get drunk. And yeah, you know, maybe I'd black out once in a while, but I wasn't an everyday drinker. It was, you know, maybe on the weekends. It was part of my job as well. My later 20s, around 27, 28, things get really bad. I'm living at home, still with my parents. My sister's married and moved out by now, has a baby. Things get really bad between my parents again because of money. Kind of becomes all-consuming. They're arguing. I'm arguing with them. I'm living in an environment I don't want to be living in. I don't think I can move out. 
Mm-hmm. All of these things are going on. I had also realized along the way, I would stay at a job for maybe a year, year and a half, two years, and then I'd switch. I'd always feel like it was me. I've done something wrong. I wasn't perfect. And if I could just, you know, find that perfect job and everything would be great. And if I could just, you know, make things good at home and everything would be great, all things would be solved. And what went from this big, giant, happy family where we did everything together with my aunts and uncles and my cousins who are more like brothers and eventually stopped. My parents separated themselves. That left me in a place of, holy shit, my life that's been for 28 years is not that anymore. And it's not what I know. My parents and I stopped talking. I moved out. Yep. And in a month of me moving out, my parents and I didn't speak anymore. And how old are you at that time? 28. Have you spoken since? Yes. So we stopped speaking for about six months. I'm in and out of depression. Mm -hmm. I'm drinking more. I would drink. And the next day, whether I had one glass of wine or I had a bottle of wine, I felt immensely guilty. Okay. I was anxious. I didn't know, like, I hated myself for it. And that's a common theme throughout my life was hating myself. Right. You can only speak for you, but I'm asking you to speculate on others. Do you think people that this is so not a Sean question, but I want to ask, (laughs) do you think people that don't hate themselves and dare I even say like themselves Mm -hmm. try to end their lives? It's not a loaded question. I'm really curious. Like, do you think one of the things that is a common thread with at least most people who attempt is that they just don't like themselves? I think that you can like yourself and still want to kill yourself because it could not have to necessarily be you, but you could hate the cards that you've been dealt, hate the circumstances that are put upon you. Right. Yeah. There's something you were saying a little earlier about everything that was going on at home, like, and when you were a little older. And there's this word that I keep coming up with. What's well, not my word? This idea of like not having any or having very minimal control. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to get all therapy here. I'm not a therapist. And I don't mean control in a sort of negative way. I mean, we need some agency yeah. or control over our lives. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I have a neighbor, I live in a duplex and he's loud. And I have this, I've talked to him. There's nothing I can do about it. And it drives me fucking batty. Yeah. It affects my sleep and I can't do anything about it. And I just see the conversation that's happening. It's not really a conversation. What's happening in my head. And it gets kind of intense. Mm-hmm. If I don't check myself, I start being like, I'm going to do some. You times that by 10 or whatever. So, all right, let's continue this. We're leading up to when you're 32 years old, yes. you are drinking. You do not feel good about it. So my parents and I make up at some point. Relationships never the same. Okay. I noticed that I'm depressed again. So I put myself back in therapy, working with my therapist. I turned 30, living on my own. I'm proud of myself living on my own. However, I'm not so happy in my career again. I'm single, which I've always been because living in the environment that I lived in and not having an example of a healthy relationship, I avoided them. You avoided romance. Romance. Yes. hundred percent. Let's fast forward. Now I am 32. My family at this point has been broken up for years. My parents don't talk to anyone on my dad's side, only talk to one brother on my mom's side. But my myself, I still talk to everybody. So it was almost like being in the child of a divorced couple. Because when holidays would roll around, it was choosing where I was going to go. And I don't want to hurt anybody, but we've done this my entire life and gone to my, this aunt's house for Christmas. How can I not go there now and go to my parents? And, you know, but if I don't spend this holiday with them, are they going to be upset? So it was, it was a lot of that going on in my brain. So I'm living in my apartment, June of 2018. I lose my job. I spend that summer. I drank a lot. I ate a lot. I gave myself the summer off. I was on unemployment. My landlord's son actually made a pass at me invitingly in my own apartment. Mm. Um, and it kind of just got brushed under the rug. Make a pass or was there something more than a pass? Tried to kiss me okay. in my apartment. Talked to the mother. The mother's like, oh, well, he has a crush on you. Blah, blah, blah. I was like, okay, well, no is no. I didn't invite you in my apartment. I didn't invite you to do this. Crazy. Yeah, I know. Here's where the dominoes really lead up to everything. Then in August, I. And with my very best friend for 
what's now going on 17 years. She's the most amazing person I've ever met in my life. We are at the beach. I drink a lot. I wake up the next morning feeling like absolute crap. And I'm like, I can't do this anymore. And I was like, Erica, I have a problem. She's like, no, you don't. I'm like, no, I I feel like I have a problem. Mm -hmm. I don't see it as a problem. It's not like you're downing a bottle of vodka every day. I was like, yeah, but something's not right. Talk to my therapist. I'm like, I'm going to stop drinking. And I do. I never go to AA. It's just, this is something, you know, I don't know if it's going to be for a week, a month, a year. We'll see where it goes. Yeah. I just know that I'm tired of feeling the way that I feel. Fast forward a few more months. I'm still unemployed. It was extremely hard to get a job. And it's January. My unemployment is running out. And now I'm like, holy crap, what am I going to do? At the same time, my landlord comes downstairs and tells me that because of some family stuff, he needs that apartment. So I have to move. Domino, domino. Yes. What the hell am I going to do? So I had to move in with my parents. Now, while our relationship was better, I knew that moving in with them was probably not the healthiest choice for me. Right. I've now lived on my own for three or so years. I have my own way of doing things. I know it's probably not the healthiest, but I know I have to do it because I have nowhere else to go. I'm still in therapy. Thank God, because I was still talking like all of this out and realizing things of I was avoiding being there. I would go to the gym that I actually now work at constantly just to kind of avoid being home because I didn't want to ruin the quote unquote good relationship that we had then. I eventually got a job um, with one of my old managers. I had moved to New Jersey at this point because that's where my parents were living. It got me out of the house. I was still able to pay my own bills, save my money, blah, blah, blah. At this time, my grandfather, the only one that I know, my father's father is very sick, was in and out of the hospital constantly. Fast forward to the summer. I'm still living with my parents. I'm seeing someone, but it wasn't really a relationship. It was more like friends with benefits. And now my grandfather's actively dying and I'm at home with my parents and I'm trying to move out. August, 2019, my grandfather is now in hospice. Mm-hmm. Telling my dad what's going on because that is his father, but he makes no effort to go and see him. Hasn't spoken to him in years. On a Sunday, my sister and I are there at hospice with my grandfather. We're the only ones. My dad calls and says, he's coming. Just one of my uncles is there whom he doesn't speak to, his brothers. My grandmother's there. My dad walks in and you can feel the anger on him. Barely acknowledges my sister and I, whatever. Out of the corner of my eye, I see my other uncle walk in. Things erupt over my grandfather while he's dying. Mm -hmm. There's an argument. There's screaming. The nurse at hospice had to come in and be like, you can't do this here. Myself and my sister are unconsolable in the hallway, hysterical crying. My father storms out. And the rest of us are kind of just left like, holy crap, what just happened? It was, we knew it was within days that he was going to pass. Go to my parents. We end up in an argument. I storm out because I was just like, I'm not doing this now. My grandfather's dying. Not doing this. Goodbye. Go to my aunts. As we finish dinner and are ready, we're literally putting our shoes on to walk out the door. We get the call that my grandfather has passed away. And this was the first like really big death in my life. And this was the first big one. And we were very, very close, lived in their house for 20 years. So it hit me very hard. Go through the entire wake, the funeral, everything without my parents' support. They were not speaking. My sister and I were not speaking to them. They were not speaking to us, but it all just kind of culminated. I start to enter into a depression. I'm filled with, riddled with anxiety. The relationship that I was in, but wasn't in, ended. I was heartbroken more so than I would have been any other time, but it was just exacerbated in the sense of everything that I want doesn't work out. Mm -hmm. I'm alone. It all hit and it hit really, really hard. I spent months in bed. I would go to work, but I would immediately come home. I remember the night that it changed for me where it went from ideation to a full-on suicide thought. It -hmm. had to be October. 2019. I was re-watching all of third season, third watch, which was a show from many, many years ago and eating ice cream. Now, prior to this, I was healthy. I was going to the gym. I was eating healthy. I was in great shape. I had stopped all of that. Food became kind of my comfort because I wasn't drinking anymore. Mm -hmm. I'm on in my bed 
hysterical crying. My mind's racing. Everything's going, eating a bowl of ice cream. And I remember thinking, well, there's pills. And I scared myself. And my next thought was, do I call somebody? No, obviously not. Of course, I'm not going to. But if I can just get through this bowl of ice cream, then I'll be okay. And that kind of became the recurring theme, Mm -hmm. even if it was five minutes. At the same time, I am researching ways to kill myself because the internet is an extremely dark and scary place. And there are things on there that should not be. Adding another layer to it was my entire life. I kind of had this weird fascination with celebrities that had either taken their lives, had drug overdoses. I guess I had a fascination with it that I just didn't know. Mm -hmm. So kind of thinking about how they did it and being jealous. I remember when, whether it was Anthony Bourdain or if it was Chester Bennington from Lincoln Park or Chris Cornell from Soundgarden, when they committed suicide, I was devastated. Mm-hmm. But I was devastated, you know, because it was so sad. I was devastated because it hit really close to home. And I was devastated because I was jealous because they could do it and I couldn't. But now here I am. When I do go to work, the only thing I'm listening to is Lincoln Park or Nirvana or the one song that I listen to over and over again was actually um, Nine Inch Nail song, I Hurt Myself. The song is basically just about like hurting yourself that day. And I would be driving home and think about, you know, wanting to turn my car into a wall, or I was driving from New Jersey to Staten Island going over the bridge. What could I do? And that just became everything. I cut out everybody in my life. The only person I really spoke to was my sister. We were never best friends. She was my sister. Love her to the end of time. But it wasn't like she was my biggest confidant. That would be my friend Erica. But at this time, everybody's concerned. Erica's, you know, coming to my apartment, leaving food here, writing me notes, beautiful text messages. And I told her to go away. And I could not be friends with her anymore because I couldn't be a good friend and to leave me alone. And in all the years of us being friends, I've never done that. My aunts and uncles that I'm very, very close with, um, my god father and my aunt, who are like another set of parents to me, kind of knew what was going on. Mm-hmm. He didn't know how to handle it, would try to call, but I would ignore the call. They'd text message. I'd give like a one word answer. I just wanted to be left alone. My therapist at this point just so happens to be on vacation in Italy for three weeks. So when things got really bad, she comes back. I tell her what's going on. And she's like, you need to be on medication. It's now gone from passing um, depression. I didn't tell her about my actual suicide thoughts. It was still ideation at that point. Um, She's like, now it's a chemical imbalance. Promise me you'll go see a psychiatrist. And interestingly enough, in New Jersey, the way we have urgent cares to go for, you know, if you have the sniffles, they have urgent psychiatry care where you can go in, speak with somebody, you fill out a bunch of forms to see how you're feeling and whatnot, and they will prescribe you something. So that's what I did. All right, maybe this will help. But I had never wanted to be on medication before. I had denied it for years put me on Lexapro. I start taking it. Everybody's so happy that I'm taking it. This is going to help. My therapist makes me make a promise with her that if I should ever have thoughts of actively killing myself, I would call her. I make the promise. In the back of my mind, I know it's complete bullshit and I would never call her. Promise that I'm going to take my meds. I took them for about two weeks and then I chose to take myself off of them because as much as I didn't want to feel that way anymore, I think that something in me, I wanted it to go where it went. Fast forward, now it's Thanksgiving. I was feeling a little bit better. I wasn't crying as much. I could even get through most of the day without crying because for the months before that, I cried on my way to work. I cried while I was at work. I cried on the way home from work. I just cried. It's now Thanksgiving. I don't want to choose what family I'm going to spend it with. So I choose to spend it alone. I didn't want to be around family because I knew like the family that didn't know what was going on, I'd be around them and they'd have questions and I don't want to answer them. So I chose to spend it alone. Fine. That same weekend, my uncle, his mother passes away. No, I'm sorry. It was his father. Wake, funeral, you know, I have to go. The anxiety that I had trying to decide if I could go to these events was overwhelming. I don't want to disappoint anybody, but I'm going to be a disappointment if I don't go. Can I just suck it up and go for an hour? And I just couldn't bring myself to do it. So it was Sunday, December 1st, and I'm sitting on this exact couch watching Grey's Anatomy, messaging that I can't do this. I can't go to this wake. I can't go to the funeral. And I'm telling my aunts and uncles this and whatever. And, you know, they're like, it's okay. It's okay. Like, 
we know you're not feeling well, blah, blah, blah. But in my mind, it's not okay. This is a responsibility of mine. I'm supposed to do this. This is, you know, what's expected of me. I can't do it. And I'm letting people down. Maybe they'll stop talking to me or maybe like they'll be mad at me. And it becomes overwhelming. Two weeks prior to this, I had bought a bottle of extra strength Tylenol. And I bought a bottle of wine because in my mind, if I was going to do this, I was at least going to enjoy myself. I haven't drank in over a year. Why not? There was one night where I did sit at my table with the bottle of wine open and the bottle of pills sitting next to it. I remember putting the bottle to my lips, but I did not drink it because something in the back of my mind said, well, if I survived, I'm going to be disappointed in myself that I drank when I haven't drank in so long. Fast forward now to December 1st. I go to bed like normal. I'm going to work the next day. Next day is Monday. The thoughts are just going over and over and over. And I'm like, something stopped. And I couldn't do it anymore. I didn't even grab the bottle of wine. I had two bottles of Tylenol, actually. I put a bunch in my hands and swallowed them. I was like, all right. And by a bunch, I probably mean like 10. I was like, all right. Now I had already researched this. I knew that like it was going to affect my liver. And if I did survive, there would be charcoal and I'd be in a lot of pain. And if I did die from it, it would be a very painful death. I knew all of these things, but I did it anyway. I was like, all right, well, that didn't, I feel fine. So I take another handful. Okay, like, I guess we'll go to bed now. And I remember waking up throughout the night. I, I think it was probably to check on myself. I don't know. Wake up the next morning. And I'm like, okay, well, still here. I don't feel sick. That didn't work. I'm getting ready for work. I'm doing my hair. I did feel off. I don't know. I can't really explain how I felt off, but in the medical sense, not just the psychological part of it and the mental part of it, but my body did feel off a little bit. And I'm doing my hair and I'm saying, do I call somebody or don't I? The thoughts just going back and forth. It's playing ping pong in my head. If I don't call somebody, I'm probably going to do it again. If I do call somebody, I don't know where that road's going to lead. Probably going to end up at the hospital. I don't know if that means I'm going to go be admitted into like psych, but I know that I'll, if I stay home and I don't tell anybody, I'm going to continue to feel this way and I'm going to do it again. Mm -hmm. And something snapped and I called my sister. All I said, it was like 7.30 in the morning. I said, Stephanie, I need to go to the hospital. She said, are you okay? I said, yes, but no. I, she's like, what happened? I said, I took a bunch of pills. Comes, gets me. We go to the hospital. I'm oddly calm. She's calm. I'm thinking, Max, if they admit me because I'm fine, they did all my tox screen levels, I'm okay. They didn't have to pump anything, nothing. Now the resident psychiatrist comes, tells me that it is no longer in my hands and they are admitting me to the psych ward. Mm. I beg not to go until the point where she's like, there's no use in you fighting it. You're going. You have no choice anymore. It's in the hands of the state. Yeah, yeah. So I kind of just had to come to that scared out of my mind, regretting the fact that I go to the hospital because mm-hmm. I don't know what it's to bring. And in my mind, I'm like, all right, you hear about like 48 hour, 72 hour holds. Maybe I'll be there day. Maybe I'll be there too. The next day, finally get transferred in the psych ward. Better experience than I thought. Cause in my mind, it was the only things that I had seen on TV and in movies. And I thought like people would be screaming and I would be like, you didn't know what you were going to see. And my whole goal was to get out of there as quickly as I could. Would I make the same call now to go back? I don't know. I was there for a week. It was a day when they forgot to give me my medication. And then in my mind, I'm like, but that's why I'm here. I felt like I didn't necessarily belong there. It turns out that when I did finally get out and I got a copy of my medical records, in my medical records, it said something along the lines of like, I was oddly okay with what I did and just saying, I'll never do it again. And they basically caught on to the fact that I was just trying to talk my way out of it. Clearly didn't work. At this point, my parents and I hadn't spoken in months. So they didn't know what happened. So my sister asked me, do you want me to tell them? And I said, if I was a parent and this happened to my child, yes. So you can tell them. Since then, we've had a relationship. Again, not the greatest, but it's there. So I get out of the hospital two weeks before Christmas. I, Christmas was the first time when I really saw family and it was nerve wracking and scary as all hell. I had to move in with my sister for a little while because I wasn't allowed to live by myself. In order for me to leave, it was part of my safety plan. I couldn't be alone. So I had to go home with my sister. I stayed there for about two weeks before I felt comfortable enough to be on my own again. Finally go back to work. 
And I just can't be there. I just can't be in that environment anymore. I can't do the hour long commute, decide that I'm leaving. I attempt to go back to the gym, decide to become a personal trainer, get certified as a personal trainer, February, 2020, two weeks later, the world shuts down. There's a pandemic. I'm not working. My doctors are telling me don't self-isolate. The government's telling me do self-isolate. At the same time, I'm told I have major depressive disorder and borderline personality disorder, which was kind of shocking. And then when I looked at the nine or 10 points of how they decide if you have borderline, it all kind of made sense. Mm -hmm. So now I'm on my own. I'm doing DBT over the computer. April, I find out that two of my cousins have COVID. I believe it was four, maybe six days of each other. They pass away. That was probably one of the scariest moments for me of COVID because I then became fearful of myself. I'm by myself. I can't go do the thing that we always do, which is go be with my family. I didn't get to say goodbye. I'm mourning from my couch. I'm now fearful of myself because I don't trust that I'm healthy enough for my thoughts to not go there. End up being okay. Thank God for therapy and and having people to talk to. It's going to be three years later now. December will be three years. Uh Um, Last week was actually the anniversary of my grandfather's passing. So from mid-August till the end of the year is actually a little hard for me. I don't like the fall. Just the smell of the air, just knowing what time of year it is and knowing what that was like three years ago still affects me to this day. It makes me uncomfortable. I still get depressed. And that's where I will say I'm not a fan of the it gets better. Because I do, I still get depressed. I still have suicide ideation. Mm -hmm. The change for me was when it went from, I would just think about it to actively putting a plan together in my mind, even in two seconds. And the only thing I can say that was completely different about December 1st, when I took the pills, one thing that always stopped me whenever I would think about it would be my niece and nephew. Mm -hmm. I didn't want my sister to have to explain. They're four and seven now. But I didn't want my sister to have to explain to them what happened to Aunt Sissy, because that's what they call me. Mm -hmm. I didn't want that to be part of their life. But on December 1st, I had tunnel vision. Mm -hmm. I blocked out every single thing that ever stopped me before or ever would stop me. It it just wasn't there. If it came into my mind for a split second, I threw it away. I didn't want to think about it because I wanted to die. That's the only way I can say I saw the difference between active suicide and ideation. I've learned ways to better regulate my emotions. Like looking back, I was very short-tempered. I relied on alcohol for a long time. And I I attribute my depression having gotten so bad in December, 2019, because I wasn't drinking. So I didn't have that crutch to kind of go back on. I had to actually face my emotions. There were a lot of things that now are very explainable. And I know that they say you're not your diagnosis. And I don't think that I am but it helps me to understand myself a lot better. And I think in that sense is where it became helpful to know, Hey, this is borderline. Yeah. This is what you have. This is not necessarily excuses, but reasons that explain why you behave the way you do. Why, Mm -hmm. if I did seek out a romantic relationship, I'd go on one or two dates and then find something wrong and push them away. But then I push them away and then try to pull them back. And it was this back and forth because I didn't know it. It's part of borderline yeah, attachment issues and then wanting to be alone and all of these things. And now they make sense to me Mm. and I can see them happening. I'm a little better with not letting it get from zero to a hundred. It may get from zero to 60. It may get from zero to 80, but it doesn't last as long. And for that, I'm grateful, but I know that this is the rest of my life. And there you have it. Thank you for sharing all that. That was a lot. I've been told I maybe give too much detail, but yes. (laughs) You shared a lot and that's great. I mean, man, you said that you still have some of those notes. Mm -hmm. Ever read them? Yes. Not going to ask you to do it, but if I asked you to, would you be able to find them right now? Yep. You think you'll keep them forever? Yeah. Do you wish that you had died that night? Sometimes. Mm -hmm. Right now? No. How many people know about your attempt? Many. Many. How many people engaged with you, in other words, didn't completely avoid it, 
and did it in a way where you're like, at a minimum, I don't feel worse after having this conversation at a minimum. Probably like 80% of the people that I've told. Wow. I think that's really, that's great. I would have thought just the opposite. All right. So Sean, Sean has to learn some stuff here. He's not always right. (laughs) I always feel like so many people get it just so wrong, but you're saying most people. People get it wrong. Don't get me wrong. And like not understanding it. Sure. Only a handful of times can I say where I felt, oh my God, I wish I hadn't told that person. That's nice to hear. How many people know that you're having a conversation with me about suicide today? No one. How many people do you think will learn about this? I don't know. And I say that because I've put this all out on social media. Uh, that's I kind of oh. use my social media in a way for that, where I write a lot and I will post about it. And mm-hmm. again, if it could reach one person, great. And I have had people reach out to me, people that I wouldn't expect that I went to high school with that I worked with 15 years ago that I've said, thank you for putting this out there. And that's when I feel validated. Like, okay, I know yeah. that this is maybe my purpose. So since reaching out to you about having this conversation, I've thought, is this something I would want to put out there right. on my own social media platform to tell people this is the full real story? I want to say yes, because I, I love to be transparent. But then there's a part of me that feels like, well, would my parents be upset? Sure. I don't blame anybody for anything. I used to blame my parents for everything. I don't necessarily hate my childhood and say I wish it never was. When I'm in a really good place, I actually can look at the borderline as a blessing. While it's hard as fuck every day, excuse my language, to wake up and have to decide am I going to be happy today? Or, you know, am I going to put the effort in to fight my demons? There's also a component to it where it's well known that people with borderline, when they love, they love really hard. Sometimes that's an issue, for instance, like a breakup, where it may not be love, but whatever that emotion is, it's, you know, going to be hard for anybody, but it's 20 times harder because you then feel like there's something wrong with you. And, you know, you were stupid for feeling this way about this person, at least from my own personal experience. When I do love, I love with my entire heart. I will do anything for those people that I love. I'm very protective. Okay. So in that sense, I feel like it's a blessing. All right. Do you think, as we're talking right here, suicide is a, is, is a possibility. It remains an option. Yes. Do you think you'll make it to 40 years old? Yes. Do you think if you make it to 40 years old or when you make it to 40 years old, you will continue to have your youthful looks? <laughs> yes. Okay. You were brought up Catholic. Mm-hmm. Your family is Catholic. Yes. Or at least most of them, I imagine. You mm-hmm. went to a Catholic school. You did something that I think in the Catholicism is a big no-no. Mm-hmm. Are you still Catholic? Yes. When you were ideating and that that spanned years or even that night did part of the internal conversation you were having was it around faith god what will they or he or it think of this how might i be punished for this maybe not that night per se but definitely 100% would play a part as a deterrent primarily yes and no no because i guess the thought was more so like, if I completed it, there would be relief. God is all forgiving. Mm. And interestingly enough, Mm -hmm. now that I'm a personal trainer, I Mm. once had a nun as a client. Mm. And I asked her, I didn't specifically say like it was me, but I said, what is the church's view on suicide? Because that was where the fear of what could have been or could be is, should I ever go down that path again? And if I remember correctly, it was basically, I was sick. I wasn't making those choices in my, what's called wise mind. It is forgivable. I don't want to go so far as to say research mm-hmm. tells us, though my doctor told me, a not small percentage of people who attempt to take their lives are not diagnosably mentally ill. If the attempt itself is a reflection of a sickness, mm-hmm. then all right. But what if it's not? And there's no, I mean, there's no right answer here. But yeah. 
Some people, arguably, are somewhat healthy. Circumstances get to a point. Hmm. All right. What about that? That is something to think about. Like, do they get forgiven? Are they uh, eternally damned? That's a whole other conversation. <laughs> That's a different podcast. <laughs> What's the one? You only get one. Sorry. The, if any, the biggest myth around any of this stuff that you would like to dispel, should you have one? Probably that suicide is selfish. Yeah. It's so far from being selfish. Yeah. I wouldn't even say that my thought process was, you know, oh, this will be easier for other people if I'm not here. Because all I thought about was how it would affect other people. I would think about if they were at my funeral. To this day, if I have to go to some, if somebody passes and I have to go to the funeral, there's always a moment I'm there. And I think to myself, that could have been me. Even if they didn't die by suicide or whatever, but people could have attended my funeral. And I still will think about that. And like I said, my niece and nephew, I consider them to be my saving grace because it could have happened many other times. But I know that other people's actions can affect someone. And I just would not want that to be their story. Yeah. They don't deserve that. Doesn't sound very selfish to me. No. Is there anything else that has kept you here? I know you mentioned your your nephew and niece, your boss. Your diagnosis has helped in some ways, right? You said it mm-hmm. made sense of things. Yes. I'm just always curious, like what helps people get through the day, which might be a little bit of a different question, but. I don't know. I think we're designed to survive, even just from like an evolutionary point of view or yeah. whatever point of view, you might have different thoughts or feelings about, about that stuff, but. I really do appreciate you sharing what you have, Christine in Staten Island. I do know the, cu- the couch you're sitting on yes. is the home you were in when you tried. This is the same home. You stayed there. Which surprises me, honestly. I will say this. I cannot sleep on the side of the bed that I slept on that night and every night prior. Wow. To this day, I can't do it. Makes sense. I do and- like those little things to be interesting. Yeah. I stayed here. I made the choice to stay here. Right. Anything else you want to add? It's a very open question. Well, I would like to say thank you for having this platform to go on. I do think it's interesting that we had this conversation today of all days, being it's September 1st, which is the start of National Suicide Awareness Month. When I was in the psych ward, I sometimes get ahead of myself and want to save the world, which is a blessing and a curse at the same time. And I was trying to come up with a million charities that could be done to make the psych ward a better place. The experience that I had there, while wasn't as bad as I thought it could be, I was also very surprised by a lot of things that really left me disheartened, made me see how little is known or cared about when it comes to mental illness. Right. And what those who are mentally ill actually need. Yes. And I think more should be shown on that. I think mental health should be taught in school, how to handle emotions. One of the big things with DBT is communication. That has been something that has helped me tremendously. I think that more should be spent on how to communicate because it does make a huge difference in everything that you do. Yeah. Well, the main reason I started the podcast, I'll tell people, well, among other things, the main one is to help people feel a little less alone. That's not entirely accurate. It's accurate, but there's more. It's me trying to do the thing as best I can, and I, and I screw it up all the time, that I think is the most important thing we can do for any all of this. Mm-hmm. It is not more advanced medication, though that could help. It is not access to quality care would be massive. In fact, you could argue that would be by far the biggest thing. It's to try to show people, hey, you know, when you have a conversation, there are some things you can do that would really help. Listen to this bald guy. He gets it wrong a lot, mm-hmm. but some stuff he's doing. You might want to apply. We learn a real lot of important things in school, whether it's a private school or public school. Learn how to listen well. And a lot of lives will be saved. And a lot more people or far fewer people will suffer. Yes. If we learned how to listen, not and not passively, not just learning how to shut up. That's a part of it. Mm-hmm. Actively engage in a way in which people feel like you're trying to understand or empathy or all these other buzzwords I can put in there. But they're, they're real. We don't learn that. I mean, maybe there's a 
Quaker school somewhere that teaches that? I don't know. But do we do that? We don't do that. Christine, it's a soft skill. And mm-hmm. soft skills are named soft because they're not important. I also feel like to add to what matters, and I don't think that we're taught it, uh, yes, to some degree, but it's more so you're expected to just know this, is that people matter. People matter. Mm-hmm. The things that you say to them, the way you treat them. Huge. And But we could zoom out, and this will be uh, another podcast for another day, but we live from when we're, I know when we're in kindergarten, we're taught to cooperate. Everything we do from a very young age to adulthood is all about competition. And I don't just mean sports teams. There's a finite amount of resources. There are grades you're going to get. Some people are going to get the job. Some won't. And it goes on and on. I don't have an answer for that because I don't know what the other option is. we got people and not everybody can do everything, right? It's inevitable, but it is the have and the have nots. And you got to get the thing and you got to get that. And it inevitably, in my experience, maybe you're different with the way you grew up with the close family. I didn't really have that lot like that. It just feels like it's me versus the world. It's me versus people. Yes. And if I'm not that way, I might be die or be homeless. So I got to go against my competition, which are other people. And so they matter less. Mm -hmm. In my own sense, I feel like I have been me against the world for so long. Perfectionism. It's one of my biggest issues is perfectionism. Wanting to be better than the trainer that's standing next to me. And I got to get through the day. And I got to do the things, of course, so that I can eat food and pay my rent. Yeah. And I don't have a lot of bandwidth for all the other stuff. It's unfortunate. I mean, obviously, it's 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 beyond unfortunate. It's it's tragic, man. I know when I say stuff like that, people look at me like, oh, you're a commie. I'm not a commie. Oh, you're so this. You're so... I'm not. I get why people don't listen well. Mm-hmm. I give them shit for it. Their focus is on five or ten other things that they have to focus on. It's survival. Being alive is hard. <laughs> it is. Again. You just learn how to, hopefully, you learn how to handle it better. Yeah. Well, you clearly are to some degree, because if you weren't, then you wouldn't be talking to me today. Mm-hmm. Kudos to you for that. Thank you. Others will hear it. I, you, you said your goal was one, but there will be more than one. I would wage. If I had money, I'd bet it. I don't have much. <laughs> it will impact them. So thank you. Welcome. Thank you. What you do matters. There will... Unfortunately, there'll always be people in these situations. Yes. But you're shining a light on it and giving those of us who have been there an opportunity to have a non-judgmental space to discuss it where we're not listening to a therapist or trying to find a solution or we're just telling our story. And I think that that's also why I give so many details to my stories. To understand the depth, this wasn't something that I just thought of one day. Right. It wasn't, things got hard, so it suddenly just came about and, hey, here's a good idea. Yeah. This was something that was around for most of my life. Right. And then you're going to be the, the, the person who gets kind of like the eye roll because you're not being open to the advice and anything I mm-hmm. said. One last thought I want to share, and I appreciate you listening. My big concern, or one of them, is if you have a friend or an acquaintance who does a lot of this bullshit... You probably won't be acquaintances or friends with them. All right, cool. We, we're adults. We can walk away sometimes. But if you're a parent and your kid lives in your home, you know what's going to happen when you do that a lot? They can't go anywhere. They're going to lie. So instead of opening up to you about it and when you ask them how you doing, they're going to say, because they know what's going to happen if they're honest. Mm-hmm. And they don't like it. It's not working for them. They don't feel good about it. So they're going to say, I'm fine. Yep. I'm okay. And they're not. That's a problem because your kid's not doing well. Yeah. yeah I, I'm not a parent. And I'm, I, I was going to say, like, you wonder why your kid isn't opening up. I'm not trying to simplify. There's all kinds of reasons why. And it's not just because parents aren't listening well. That would be unfair. But it's a part of it. Yes. I don't have children either. But I will say sometimes they don't want to see it. Oh, yeah. Because then they're, they feel it's their fault or that people will blame them for it. Sure. Yeah. And that's why I think they're not always the best people to be talking to because they're just way too invested in it. It's hard for me to get behind that a lot that you don't want to see it because what's at stake is the the stakes are rather high. So I don't know. I don't have the answer. I agree. I I hear There are some things that we'll just never have the answer to. Yeah. All right. Thanks again, Christine. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Hope your day is nice. You too. Bye. Bye.
As always, thanks so much for listening and all of your support and special thanks to Christine up in New York. Thank you, Christine. If you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to talk, please reach out. Hello at SuicideNoted.com on Facebook or Twitter at SuicideNoted. And check the show notes. There's another way you can reach out via a recorded message. There's also some information there about supporting us and sponsoring us and having us come to your organization or your campus or your community, as well as some upcoming events. So check that out. And that is all for episode number 136. Stay strong. Do the best you can. I'll talk to you soon.